shock you. Uh, we're continuing our study of Galatians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, there's some back there on the connect cart, and, uh, or pens if you're a note taker. Um, you can grab one of those. Uh, we are in chapter 2. We're going to finish the chapter today. And uh, so we are going to begin uh, Galatians 2, verse 15. 15 and 16 will be familiar. Uh, last week's passage ended with it. It's kind of the thesis of the whole book. And so we're putting in two sermons. Um, so we'll repeat these two verses. So 15 through the end of the chapter. Uh, let's give our attention uh, to God's perfect word. Uh, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful passage. There's so much here. Lord, I pray that you would prepare their hearts and that you would help me be a laser focused, very clear. That they would see the riches of their union with Christ. They would encourage their hearts and it would actually affect the way they view life. Lord, it's a big ask, but you are a big God. And so I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, and some of you weren't, so I'll, I'll refresh you. I told this made-up story. Well, the first part wasn't. I got a, a parking ticket. I walked up. The guy was doing the, still filling out the ticket, and he wouldn't give it. Let me off. He still handed it to me. But then I made up a pretend story, right, about what if he said, oh, I'll pay it for you. He saw the other tickets in my dashboard. He paid for those. And he said, here's my credit card. I'll pay for all your future tickets, right? It was a, a wild story. But remember the last part? was that he gave me his prize parking spot right by the front door because he was officer of the month because he'd written so many tickets to people like me. Um, but remember that story, right? And, and why was I saying that? Because that's like our justification, right? That all of our sin was paid by Christ, our past, present, and future sin. And then we received from him his righteousness. What he earned came to us, right? And, and that's a fitting um, picture, isn't it? There's only one problem. Though my little silly story is fitting, it's ridiculous, and so no parking officer I've ever met could conceivably do any of those things. And so my concern is this. Um, we said last week, remember we said theology matters. This stuff makes the difference between life and death. If you don't get this right, you don't go to heaven. You have to understand you're saved by faith alone. You can't trust in anything else. But even though that theology hopefully was clear last week, my concern is this, that it can be kind of impersonal or kind of abstract. Like I know it's important, but it's abstract. So my task today, and I think this passage does it very well, is it's not abstract. It's not impersonal. A person died for your sins. A person paid for that. Obviously, it's Christ. So the theology that, that really hinges on, or that's in this passage, is called union with Christ. Again, this could be another dry, dusty theological term, but it shouldn't be. And, 
Hopefully by the end you won't think so either. Look at page 7, you'll see the outline. We're answering this question. How does our union with Christ transform our paradigm for life? A more simpler way would just be to say, if you understand union with Christ, it should change everything, including these three things. One, that we no longer view the law as a means of pleasing God. First, second, we no longer view our lives as a means of pleasing ourselves. And then those are both negative and positively stated. We view our lives through the finished work of Christ. So we're going to start with the first one. We no longer view the law as a means of pleasing God. 15 and 16, we covered in depth last week, but we'll review them. Um, kids, do you remember? I gave you a memory clue. Does anyone remember what it was? A way to remember what justification means. Do you remember justification sounds like what? Just as if I. Do you remember that? Just as if I had never sinned. It was the first half of justification. The second half, just as if I have always obeyed. Right? Jesus obeyed. I get his righteousness. I gave all my sin to him. Right? And adults, you can use it too. It's a great way to remember justification. Just as if I. When we talked about that, we talked about how many times. Um, kids, you can... Um, right in your bulletin, again, the passage is there. Adults, you're welcome to too. Um, circle all the times you see the word um, justified uh, in verses 16 and 17. And, um, and then also the word law. And law, maybe you want to do something different. Underline it or something in our whole passage. Um, I'll give you the number you're looking for. Uh, you should find uh, justified four times and the law six times. There's two more times it's referred to but not mentioned. There's a lot. These are the two main ideas. Justification and law, the relationship between those. So this whole passage is about. So the question, though, is these big transactions. He got my sin, I got his righteousness. How is that transaction activated? How is it activated? Before I answer that for you, let me illustrate this. I want you to imagine a man, a very wealthy man. He's young. He's a self-made millionaire. He's in his young 30s. And by this point, he has a large estate. He owns several companies, a lot of money. And uh, he picks the girl of his dreams to marry, and she's just out of college, and she's got all kind of debt. Debt is her middle name. So she's got college loans, car loans, credit card debt, and um, her little townhouse has a mortgage. All right, so they couldn't be more different. These are two people. Now, how do, how does they, uh, their assets come together, right? How does she get his money, and how does he get her debt? What, what activates those transactions? The obvious answer is marriage, Right? When they get married, all of a sudden, two become one, right? So go back to my spiritual question. How are those two transactions spiritually activated? Jesus getting all your sin and you getting all his righteousness. It's a little bit like marriage. It's called union with Christ. So union, you know this in marriage, union, and so it's us and Jesus we've come together. Okay, so that's what this whole thing is about. All right, so look, hang with me these next couple verses are a little bit tough, but hopefully they'll make sense in a second. The thing to under, we're going to start with verse 17. In order to understand this, remember, Paul is refuting, um, he's been accused of things, right? And so in Galatians, he's often addressing accusations we don't have, but we can kind of guess what they probably were. So I'm going to read 17, but I'm going to add in some extra words, so hopefully it'll make sense. Um, But if in our endeavor to be justified by faith in Christ, it's a good thing, right? That's what we're all doing, trying to be justified in Christ. We too are found to be sinners. What does he mean? Well, he can mean several things. One is, is that we're accused of being sinners because they stopped the um, ceremonial law, right? That's a big no-no, right? Then the Jews are saying, you guys are the worst. You've let go of all these laws. 
So if while we're trying to be justified by faith alone, we've let go of the ceremonial law and we're accused of being sinners, does that make Christ now? Look at how the verse goes on. Is Christ a servant of sin? Is Christ guilty of leading people astray to let go of the ceremonial law? Does the logic of this make sense? He's saying that he would be guilty of leading us astray. And what does he say? Certainly not. Certainly not. Okay, so he refutes their accusation. Now, that was kind of defensive. Now he goes on an offensive posture. Look at 18. Again, I'm going to add some words in for you. For if I rebuild, what's he rebuilding? If I rebuild the old law that I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor could be translated lawbreaker. This is what he's saying. He's saying, you accuse me of being the sinner because I let go of the ceremonial law. No, no. You who rebuild what's already torn down, you're their lawbreaker. Do you see how he defends and then attacks? He says, no, this is not true. You, if you rebuild, that's exactly what the Judaizers, the circumcision party, and the Galatians, who he's writing to, that's what they're tempted to do. Rebuild what was torn down. Um, kids, you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Does anyone know what happened in the temple? There was this huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Do you know what happened? When Jesus died on the cross, it ripped, but it didn't rip this way, it ripped this way, from the top to the bottom. This was symbolizing that the ceremonial law had been fulfilled. No longer was this going to, the old Judaism was going to look different, right? So what, to rebuild would be like going in there with your needle and thread and trying to sew it back up. I want to rebuild this old law. It's crazy. No one should do that. Why? Because it was an old master. It was not, it was not an easy master to live under the ceremonial law. God has set you free. Right, let me tell you a story. This happened one decade ago, 2013 July. Nigerian prison. A guy who's a prisoner gets acquitted of all his charges. All right, what would we expect? He's going to celebrate. Let's go free. No. He refuses to leave. He says, I went back into prison. He liked it better there. And he said, let me back in. It took six officers and court officials to drag the guy out of the courthouse who was now free, who wanted to go back to prison. Ridiculous. But do we not do the same thing? We have been set free from the law, and yet we're trying to fight our way back in. No, no, I want to go back to prison. I want to rebuild what was torn down. I want to rebuild what was torn down. Because of your union with Christ, you no longer need to view the law as a means of pleasing God. This is the way that many of the Jews believed it. If I do all these things, I'll make God happy. Many Christians think this way. If I do all this stuff, if I come to church, I, do what, I check some boxes, I read my Bible, whatever list you want to make, then I'm going to please God. Then God will like me. Do you not realize you're fighting your way back into prison? You're fighting your way back into prison. It's not a place you want to be. God has set you free because you've been unioned with Christ. Remember, what did you get? He took all your sin and you got all his righteousness. You no longer, you no longer need to do this. Look at verse 19. He continues this thought. He says, for through the law, I died to the law. What does he mean? For through the law, I died to the law. If you've been around a while, you remember we say the Ten Commandments. You remember that? It was a painful process for all of us, right? By the end, we all realized, well, I broke it all of these. When you get to the heart of them, you might remember we talked about three uses of the law. I want to bring back up two of them. One of them was one of the uses of the law is as a mirror. When you look in the mirror, 
uh, I think it was yesterday, I didn't look in the mirror. I, my wife says, wow, that's a, some wild hair, honey. Right, so if you, if you, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? You see what you look like. And the law does that. When you look at the Ten Commandments, any of the law, you see, wow, I'm not like that. That's what a mirror does. The law, that's one of the purposes of it. And so Paul says, it was through the law that I died to the law. Okay, well, there's some more puzzle pieces. He's left out a couple of steps. He's jumped from here to here. So through the law, I realized I was a sinner. I saw myself in the mirror. You got that part? Next step. Oh, I need saving. Who obeyed the law? Well, Jesus did. Jesus completely fulfilled the law. And then through, remember that transaction, through our union with Christ, he got our sin, we got his righteousness, right? And so the now, are you now alive to the law? No. It no longer is my master, right? That's what he said. I'm not going back to that prison. Okay, so through the law, I realized I need a savior. Through the savior, I now am dead to the law. Does that make sense what he's saying? Through the law, I died to the law. The law helped me realize, because remember Paul, man, he was a good Pharisee. He obeyed all the laws as best he could. But he came to the end of himself, right? It didn't get him anything. He just wore him out. It will wear you out. You can try to obey all the laws as much as you want. I recently was talking to a a Catholic acquaintance, a friend of mine, and he he said, oh, we're we're preaching the same thing. My church, your church. He went on. I'm like, what do I do? What do I say? And uh, so he kept going on and on. He said, man, we preach, you know, be good, be nice, obey the rules. You preach the same thing. I'm like, so I'm praying into the whole conversation, like, what do I say? And uh, so I thought of something. Sorry, I threw you under the bus. I said, you know, I preach that to my people, and they fail miserably. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I said, you know what? If I'm honest, I do too. I do too. And, and he said, yeah, that's true. I said, but I'm so thankful. And I used the illustration some weeks ago. I told you it was a Tim Keller illustration of the rescue helicopter. Remember the Coast Guard? Guy drowning. And I said, so many religions, I, I described the scenario, is like throwing a book out to the, to the guy, how to swim. This will save you, how to swim. Right? And I said, so many religions, give you a book of a bunch of stuff to do. I'm so thankful. A book that I could never keep. I keep failing, you guys fail, I fail at it. I said, I'm so thankful Jesus jumped out of the helicopter and saved me. We got interrupted after that, so it was the end of the conversation. Hopefully God does something with that. But what, what was he doing? He was trying to use the law to please God. Because of our union with Christ, you don't have to do that. We have something way better. I mean, the, the more he commits himself to that, he will discover that he's miserably failing, just like all of us already know, right? We use the law as a mirror, not to save us, but just to see we need a savior. The law is not going to help you to get gains God's pleasure. We'd never, we'd never measure up. Okay, look at the, the rest of 19. He goes on, right? It's not just that, that we're dead to the law, so now we can sin. What does he say? He says, for through the law, I died to the law, so that, so that what? What does it say? So that I might live to God. You see, there's another way to use the law, not only as a mirror, but also as a map. Now, none of you use maps anymore. Anyone that's, I don't know, 35 or older, used to have map books, right? We had those. Look in the back, you find the street name, you look on what page you need or whatever. And um, so you use a map, and kids, it was this big piece of paper and had lines on it. It's like Google Maps, but it was like on paper, okay? Google Maps on paper. And we would like try to get, the law is like that. The law is like that. It's not going to save you, but if you want to live to God, how do you live to God? Do you just make it up? No. He told us. He told us what pleases him. So you use the law not to save you, but rather as a map to know how to please him. 
So he says, I, I've died to the law, but I want to live to God. All right, I have a riddle for you. You ready? Listen close to my words. There once was a woman who tried so, so hard to please her husband so that he would marry her. Let me say it again. <clears throat> there, I'll make it even easier. There once was a wife who tried so, so hard to please her husband so that he would marry her. Do you notice anything wrong with this? They're married. Are you married to Christ? Are you? Are you single or are you married to Christ? If you are married to Christ, stop using the law to try to please him. You don't need to win his affection. You already have it. You already have it. Well, there's another mistake we can make. That's our second point. We no longer view our lives as a means to please ourselves. So I ask you, what pleases you? What makes you happy? Imagine for many of you, it's if circumstances go well, right? Billions and billions of dollars are spent in this country to try to help you accomplish this goal, right? We have diet programs and we have exercise equipment and gym memberships and professional development and education and universities. And if you do all these things, you will be happy. You'll have a happy full life. Isn't that what they say? We all know it's, it's not going to work. That's what our world says. But then, like my Catholic friend, we think Christianity. Oh, this is a big checklist. I'll do these things, and then I'll have a happy life. And so we live for ourselves, and you can even do that in the church. You can still live for yourself in the church. It's very self-deceptive, but many people do it. Just like the world. What is that? And even you who know this is not true, do not beat yourself up for your failures I struggle not to do that. We try really hard to live good lives. This is an awful slave master. If you're honest, you know this, right? Trying by your own effort to live a good life, to please yourself, it's not going to work. I want you to look at Paul's perspective. And kids, here you can mark something else. See in 19 and 20 how many times you can find the word I and me. See, you mark them all. You're going to find a bunch of them. Paul is now being very, very personal. This is like his personal declaration. Verse 20 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You might have noticed that was the old NIV because I memorized it in. This says flesh, same difference. Flesh, it's meaning body. Now, Paul, is he double, like, double-minded? Like, is he dead or is he alive? He says, I'm dead, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm living in this. There's an eye that's dead and there's an eye that's alive. Let me explain what I mean. I have been, let's start with the first part. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. He's saying I died when Christ died. He understood his union with Christ. He said, I'm so union with Christ that when he hung on the cross, it's like I hung on the cross. It's like those nails were, drove through my hands because he was bearing my sin. My life as I knew it ended on the cross. About that. Your life, if you're a believer, ended, as you know it, on the cross. It no longer exists, which is awesome. Hopefully, you're seeing how this is not impersonal, an impersonal transaction. And this is highly personal. Jesus, a real person, 
spilt real blood for your real sins. It's not theoretical at all. It's very, very personal. When you sin, Jesus had to pay for your specific sin on the cross. Your sin on the cross. I want to tell you a story about my youngest daughter, Caroline. I asked her permission to tell this story. And um, so oftentimes after I discipline her, she's praying. And she says this. She says, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for this sin. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you for dying on the cross for this sin. For Caroline, the connection between her sin and what Jesus did on the cross is very personal. She's connected the dots to what I just did, Jesus had to die for. Oh, that we could learn from the wisdom of a nine-year-old. Do you connect your sin to what Jesus did? It should not be abstract and personal. It's very, very personal. Jesus died for our specific sins. When did this happen? It happened the moment you became a Christian. When you were justified, all who have believed, it was not our good life. We're not trying to please ourselves. It was Christ who did it for us. That old life is gone. It's over. It's dead. It's buried. There's a story that's told. It's told long ago. Different people have been given credit for it. But we aren't sure who, did, who said it. It's great. So I'm going to tell it to you. About a promiscuous man. He had many girlfriends, but he became a Christian. Okay, so he becomes a Christian, and he runs in to one of his old girlfriends. That's awkward. And, uh, they, but he's pleasant. He says hello to her, and, but he just keeps on walking. He doesn't stop, just says hello and keeps walking. She's shocked, right? This is not the man she knew. So she calls after him and says, it is I. Maybe I, he didn't recognize me. It is I. And he says, but it is not I. What does he mean? But it is not I. He said, the man that you used to know does not exist anymore. He's now a Christian. That man is dead. That's what Paul means. I have been crucified with Christ. That old life, that old man doesn't live anymore. Now, one of the challenges is you sin and you feel like, man, I'm no better than I used to be. But that's not true. You have to believe what Scripture says. You're a new creation. That man no longer lives. It is not I. So what's the alternative to trusting in our own attempts to live to please ourselves or to live a good life or to follow all the rules. So there is an alternative to those, to those two, which is our third point. We live our lives through the finished work of Christ. Verse 20 goes on. So he first starts with, um, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. But then look what he says. But Christ lives in me. Christ, what does he mean by that? Well, you might have heard, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And because of the Trinity, we can say very fairly that the Spirit of Christ lives in you. So you have the Holy Spirit when you became a Christian. So he lives inside of you. Since, you know, I've thought about this all week, and which is great. It's a benefit of preaching is you have this, and you, I wrote it on Wednesday, and I've thought about it. One of the things that dawned on me was just how ordinary. You know, kids, you've probably seen superhero movies, right, when they get their superpowers, it's really cool, isn't it? And you might wonder if that's like, if you read the Bible and you read about all the power of Christ and you're like, the spirit of Christ comes and lives in me. Wow, this is gonna be awesome. You're like, I'm not sure if he lives inside of me because I feel kind of like I always have, like I'm pretty ordinary. So I just want to set your expectations. That's how it's gonna feel. It's gonna feel very ordinary. Why? 
What did the verse say? It says, I live by faith. Right? Do you see it there in verse 20? The life I live in the body, I live by faith. I understand what's attractive about the chari- for the charismatics, for the Pentecostals, because they read and they're like, this has got to be more exciting. Like, we need to like soup this up, right? Because if the, if the Spirit lives in me, like it should be really, really big and exciting. But it's very ordinary often, right? And so by faith, I believe. And so I had to tell myself this week, on my highs and my lows this week, I had to say, Nathan, Christ lives in you. I am union with Christ. This is one of the challenges of the Christian life is believing what you do not see. Remember Jesus said to Downing Thomas? What did he say to him? He said, because you've seen, you have believed to Thomas. Blessed are those who do not see, have not seen, and yet believe. You've not seen. We believe Hebrews 11.1, same idea. It says, faith is the confidence we hope for in the assurance of what? What we do not see. You can't see your union with Christ. You will feel very ordinary. And Satan will accuse you. Your flesh will accuse you. You're no different than you've ever been. But that's not true. The Bible says otherwise. You have to believe by faith what this verse says. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. You know that illustration I told you of the poor woman who married with all of her debts? She has to trust in her union that he's going to take care of all her debts, right? Because she now has a rich husband. She can see that rich husband. You cannot see your Lord. You must believe by faith that he's going to take care of everything. All your sins, all the debt, all the shame. And then he also gives you all his righteousness. This should change your paradigm for living. This should change how you feel. Oh, may it. So look there. So he says, but how do you know that? What proof do you have? Think about that. What proof do you have? What proof do you have that he really is there for you, that he is really union to you? Look at the end of verse 20. He gives two proofs. Look at the end of, what does he say? End of verse 20. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me. No greater love than someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus did that for you. He laid down his life. What greater proof could you imagine than the Son of God dying for you? Because he loved you, and he still loves you. When we, when we understand this, it really changes our viewpoint. If you're married, did your perspective change at all when you got married? Did you basically live like a bachelor the rest of your life? Don't nod your head yes, please. No, of course not. Right? Old clothes that you thought were fine ended up in the garbage, right? All kind of things changed. Right? Your perspective on life changed. You now, you're thinking about there's this other person. Again, I ask, are you married? If you are a Christian, you are not a bachelor. You are not on your own. You have a Savior. It changes your perspective. I'm so thankful for that. It also changes. There's so many things. Kids, are you ever scared of the dark? So here, I'll make it less scary. I was scared of, my dark, scared of the dark for a good part of my life, way longer than I should have been, well into my teenage years. And so I, that, who knows what's out there? 
right? And so I, I used to hike into the national forest, and you hear weird sounds out there by yourself, and you're like, I don't know what's going to come eat me today. And, um, and so I had to learn, and so I'd kneel down and close my eyes, and, which is exactly what you want to do when you're scared of the dark, right, kids? I just pray and say, God, you are in control over everything. I know that I'm safe because of you. And so I just, I had to conquer that fear. So understanding, kids, that Jesus is with you. When you're in your room going to bed and you're scared, Jesus is there. Jesus is there. If you've placed your faith in Christ, he comes and he lives inside of you and you're always there. This is why you love mommy being there or daddy being there. Right? And this is true of all of us. When you're scared, you, it would be encouraging to know that you have your Savior with you. Union with Christ really makes a difference. You don't feel different, but it's true. And little by little, now let me add, it will change how you feel. Do you, let me give you some more adult versions other than scare the dark. Do you struggle with anxiety? Do you struggle with depression? Um, do you struggle with self-condemnation? Any of these things. If you struggle with these, it makes a difference that you are connected, you're married to Christ, and all your debt went to him, and all his assets came to you. It really makes a difference. Little bit by bit. See, I want you to understand these theologies we're going through, justification now, union with Christ, it really makes a different street level with real ordinary everyday things like anxiety and depression and self-condemnation. Understanding Jesus and I are now one. I know it, it, it's, not, doesn't, it's not magical. It's not just you know this fact and so it all goes away. But little by little, this is what I hope this morning, that these things will get from your head down to your heart. So it has to happen. It's a slow, it's a long journey. You wouldn't think it's that far from here to here. It's a really long journey. But slowly, and this is why verse 20 is such a good verse. So I memorized it. Because you tell yourself, you're like, this is true. The life I live in this body, this body that's imperfect and disappoints me and I disappoint others. That he, that I live this life by faith in Christ. That my life ended with his, but now he is living in me. Look how our passage ends. Verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. I do not make it null and void. Really? Us as humans could nullify the grace of God? Big God who made the whole universe? No, you can't. But what are they doing? If you live like the, the Judaizers, that's what you're trying to do. You're saying, yeah, I've, I've made the grace of God. I've nullified it because I can do this on my own. You mean kids, if you said this, at a very young age, I do myself. I do it, right? They learn those words quickly. I want to do it myself. And we grow up and we still say that to God. I got this. I can do this. No, you don't got this, right? God, I need your help. You're trying to nullify the grace of God. Paul's calling them out. What you're doing, Galatians, is trying to nullify. Oh, he gets even more serious. He says, if righteousness or justification, similar word in Greek, were through the law, look at that last line, then Christ died for no purpose. Now that is a bold statement. Christ died for no purpose. Kids, what I'm about to tell you is not true. I have one brother. That part is true. His name is Daniel. The rest is not true. Imagine me being on death row. I'm on death row. And my brother, he really loves me. And he says, I will take the electric chair for you. That'd be amazing. So my brother comes. And I watch from my jail cell. My brother, as he shakes, as electricity goes through his body until he lays limp dead. And I turn around. And I say, what a waste. I'll probably get out of here for good behavior any day. That's what this verse is saying. Jesus died for nothing. It's not impractical. It's not impersonal. Paul is trying to connect the dots. This is real. There's a real person on the other end of your salvation. It is Jesus Christ. When you start messing with it, as the Judaizers and the um, 
circumcision party we're doing. And as we're tempted to do, try to break back into our old prison. And Christ died for no reason. Of course he didn't die for no reason, right? And he's trying to help them connect the dots. I hope you too are connecting the dots this morning. He did die for purpose. As we wrap up, you're not the only one here this morning hearing my voice. The spirit of the risen Christ is also here. So I imagine with this many people, some of you, children or adults, have not actually really placed your faith in Christ. You know the story. You know Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But you've never actually tied the knot. Right? You know the common law marriages. You can't do that with Jesus. Yeah, there's no common law marriages. You must commit yourself. Right? We have marriage ceremonies. Why? Because part of it is those two people get it. Like we are binding ourselves to each other. Right? Have you bound yourself to Christ? If you've bound yourself to Christ, you have union with Christ. All that we've been talking about is true of you. I know it doesn't always feel like that, but it's true of you. Are any of you single? Or maybe single again? Do you know, if you are a Christian, that Christ is always with you? You are not single spiritually. You have a Savior. So whether God ever has Mr. Right or Mrs. Right for you, that Jesus loves you, he'll always be with you. That should give you a lot of comfort, whatever age you are. The union with Christ is very, very practical. This has been an encouragement to me this week. I pray this morning that this, this great, nearly unfathomable truth would impact your heart, so that you would get it, that you have union with Christ. And I know it's going to take a lot of time to flesh that out, but I hope it starts this morning, that you would begin in your everyday life to begin to, to just apply that into your moment and say, what is, how does it impact this, this anxiety, this fear, this anger, this whatever the situation is, right? whatever's going on? All my debts are paid for. Kids, hope you remember that, that clue. Just as if I, you're justified. All my sin went to Jesus. All his righteousness came to me. Through your union with Christ. Through your union with Christ. Remember that, um, the woman with all those debts? We're going to end here. The woman with all the debts. One of her old creditors comes and finds her. Calls her by her maiden name. Says, you owe me. And what does she say? She says, that woman doesn't exist anymore. That woman's dead. Leave me alone. Go talk to my husband. Brothers and sisters, you can say to every accusation, you hear from your own heart, from others, or from Satan himself, that person is no longer alive. Go talk to my husband. Go talk to Jesus. He, I, I bear a new name. I'm no, I no longer have a maiden name, right? You're, you are now married to Christ. You bear the name Christian for a reason. He is your new identity. He makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that I have not overstated anything. It's actually way better than I could even explain. God, thank you. Thank you that this is true. As we in a moment are about to declare this as our confession of faith, Lord, I pray for their hearts that they would be able to mean this. Lord, I pray that they would be able to take that verse and this concept into their lives and begin to flesh it out into their everyday lives. 
to understand that they are really union to Christ. If they're a Christian, if they aren't, Lord, help them know that. May they not go with any false understanding. But Lord, for, for most of us, this is. We are, we are yours, Christ. Lord, help us understand it. Help it bring them great, great comfort in their everyday lives. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.